And we are live with our 48th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky uh, on Twitter. We are we are doing. Sorry, give me one sec. You know what I did, Seth? Right? I don't even have to say it. Yep, I do. Yeah. Kevin Cody was just saying how I haven't messed up the volume piece there in a bit, and I just did it. It's because it's early. And by the way, yes, we're here early today. This is uh, uh, for our special guest um, joining us from a completely different time zone. But anyways, uh, so I'm joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to Absolute AppSec, uh, 48 episodes in. We're excited to have Omer on today. Um, shifting times a little bit to to make sure that everybody could make it. But I think it's going to be a good episode talking Kubernetes security and um, all the things, right? As usual. Uh, as far as far as kind of logistical announcements, I don't think there's much on our end that we need to go over right now, uh, Ken. Um, there's a couple of training courses and things like that that are in the works. Um, as always, I oh I was at B side Salt Lake City, gave out a bunch of absolute AppSec swag and stuff like that. So hopefully we've got a couple new listeners that are jumping in from that. Um, and as always, you can join our Slack channel, go to absoluteappsec.com. There's a link there that'll let you into Slack. Or if you feel like you want to interact with us in some way, that would be great. Um, yeah. Otherwise, right. Come find us if you need some uh, you know, absolute AppSec sticker or something like that. We'll, we'll kind of give you, We've got a bunch of them. I, I just ordered a new set. So, can anything else? Um, you know, while you were saying that, I was trying to think of something, but uh, no, <laughs> I don't you have. Can't, you can't. Else. Ma- you can't make anything up right now. Is that what you're saying? No. Yeah. Nothing. Um, and uh, I guess the only thing to say is, Seth, are you going to be at Locomoco Sec, or is that just? It's up in the air right now for me. I'm not sure. Um, it kind of depends on. The other stuff, if it gets accepted for us. So. Oh, cool! Yeah, no, I I know I am gonna be at uh, Locomoco Sec, so uh, that'll be in April. Um, May is up in the air, uh, but yeah, I think we got at least I'll be at Locomoco Sec for sure. Um, should we get into the App Sec minute before we introduce Levi and or sorry, Omer and uh, yeah. Um, I'm so focused on pronouncing his name correctly that I'm like, I'm, I'm spitting myself up about it, like because I don't want to butcher his name. Anyways, um, should we get into the AppSec Minute then? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Okay, cool. I mean, I figured we'd talk about the .dev TLD, uh, top-level domain. Um, just a short history before we get into what Jerry did, <laughs> Jerry Camblin did, which is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> Short history is in 2014, I think it was 2014, that domain was registered uh, like part of ICANN, uh, you know, was .dev was a domain registered, but it wasn't actually really used or, or a problem in the sense of, um, to explain that thought, when you set up a local development environment, so like, let's say you wrote, wrote a web application and you run it locally, or you run several web applications, you run them locally. Uh, usually what used to happen is you would try to emulate as best as you can production. So you've got like myapp.dev that you would navigate to locally. It would hit the, the web app that you've spun up running on your machine locally. Never go out to the internet, no reason. Um, no reason to resolve that DNS entry. Uh, it would just say, hey, .dev uh, means local. So a lot of people would set up Nginx on their local machines to uh, resolve .dev domains, especially useful when you have like a few different apps where you've got like an SSO client and an SSO provider, for instance, running on your box. You can flip between these different websites and use that .dev um, top-level domain. 2017, I think it was like, became a real problem in 2017 of November maybe or something like that. But I know it was in July of 2017, there were blog articles about like, Hey, just so you know, you're not going to be able to use dot dev anymore. And the reason for that was uh, Google. So if you tried to resolve to dot dev, you'd actually, your DNS record would say, Oh, well, let me go call out to the internet, see where dot dev 
um, lives and precedent would be given to that DNS entry um, outside of your local machine. So that broke a bunch of development environments. I think POW, which is uh, what I used to use, um, POW simplifies, like if you're using Rails apps and you wanna um, do that .tev, uh, POW would simplify uh, that whole process. I think they had to move to .test instead. And it broke a lot of people's development environments. So as of 2019, very recently in the last few weeks, um, you're able to begin registering for uh, .dev domains. And that leads us to Seth, if you want to discuss a little bit about uh, what Jerry did, which was pretty funny. Uh, I think it was yesterday he announced it or did it or both. Yeah, he announced it, I think, actually just this morning on Twitter, he actually like, he registered it yesterday. So he registered the domain internal.dev, right? Um, so all of these developer workstations that have been set up to like go to local host, right? Like, you know, or if they don't like resolve, they don't have some sort of master DNS record that forces that to go to local host means that all of those requests are now spinning to Jerry's server is basically what it boils down to. Um, I'm not sure what he's backed it with. Uh, like I, I haven't even gone to it yet. It just cracked me up that he had gone and registered that because we know the way that developers follow those patterns that they always use specific domain names, right? And it's usually codified in some sort of development documentation that, hey, when you're developing local, you're not going to use localhost. You use internal.dev or you use, you know, mysite.dev, something along those lines, because it doesn't resolve. That was the whole point of using those domains in the in the past. Uh, Google came out and told people that they were going to start, you know, resolving. But now that they actually are, Jerry's snagged basically one of the most used development domains uh, by virtue of the development process. And I, I'm really interested to see what will happen there. Uh, you know, Omer, for your background, if you don't know, Jerry's one of the, he's been on a few times, uh, a couple of times on the show. I uh, used to work at Carfax, but he's a he's in the security field. He does AppSec stuff with us as well. Um, but it'll be interesting to actually see what the what the fallout of this is, right? I, he like, he, he had mentioned know. predicting that possibly CI systems would break or something along those lines. So yeah, it'll be curious. I'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm curious. So what I'm doing right now, I'm trying to find on, you know, github.com, your, your search foo and on GitHub is probably better than mine. Trying to figure out like how many references to internal.dev there are just in public, you know, github.com. Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, yeah, I don't want to get too, but yeah, that's, I actually am interested now. Uh, <laughs> so, so the recommendation from an AppSec Minute perspective is um, you need to know what you're pointing at, even when you're in development and staging environments, right? Rather than, you know, just trusting that some domain that you come up with, right, never will resolve. I, I mean, I like way back in the day, I used to pe you see people use like localhost.com as well. Right, that was a very you know common one that that came up, um, and then they would put in internal host entries in their local machines, which will work even with internal.dev. If you actually set up your host file properly and it looks up in the host file first for that, it'll still resolve locally. But in, in the case that you forget to do that, it's going to go to Jerry's server at this point or somewhere else. And even localhost.com, that was always a common one that happened. Um, so anytime that you're trusting the DNS system to make that resolution for you, there can be problems and there can be lookups that you don't intend, right? For sure. Yeah, it should be interesting to see what happens. Somebody had mentioned uh, registering for email with that domain. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should probably, uh, introduce our guest and, um, we've got a lot of watchers right now, by the way, uh, maybe this time slot's a better, a better time slot. We might have to put out a poll, see yeah. if this one, if this time works better for people. But, uh, but anyways, uh, so our guest today is, oh, I'm going to try and not butcher this. I apologize if I do 
Omer Levi Hevroni from um, Israel uh, and who works at Saluto. Is that correct, Omer? Yes. Uh, so first, uh, thank you for having me and thank you for doing it early for me. Uh, it's pretty late here, so thank you for finding the time. Um, yes, so I'm working at Saluto. Uh, Saluto uh, is an R&D center for Shuran, uh, a big US company in Tel Aviv. Um, so yes, that's correct. Awesome. Well, no, thanks for joining us. Um, we appreciate having you on. Um, and to go in a little bit about uh, Omer's background, basically, he's got a background in DevOps, uh, DevSecOps, and was a software developer uh, first. So, and we're going to ask you about your background so you can kind of give us your, uh, so we can kind of see how you ended up in security. But, you know, he's spoken at AppSec Cali at least a couple times. Um, OWASP Poland, OWASP Israel, uh, DevOps, all DevOps days, which was interesting to hear about that concept where it's uh, online and, and Homer was telling us how they shipped him a microphone and like this professional uh, setup. But he um, is he's worked on Glue with Matt Conda and uh, Camus, which is uh, which is what his AppSec Cali talk was about with Kubernetes secret management. So we're certainly going to get into that. Um, that's one of the primary things we definitely want to talk about today. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us, Omer. Thank you. So let's get right into your, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about, about your background and how you ended up in uh, kind of being somewhat, uh, well, not somewhat, being security focused? Yeah, um, so uh, like I'm writing code for a very long time. Uh, actually, uh, while you were talking about the .dev, I tried to remember and I think I never saw something with .dev in like the last 10 years that I'm writing code which maybe I don't do the cool things that everyone is doing. I don't know. Maybe it's my problem. Um, so anyway, uh, so I started as a coder, and I started to work at Siloto four years ago. And at some point, Assurance uh, Security understood that they have R&D centers all around the globe, and they can't just do security for one place. So they started a security champion uh, program. They like to call it security mavens. Um, and I got the opportunity to join this program, um, and I took it with both ends. And this is how I started uh, the, the journey into AppSec. It was three years ago, and I'm really happy about this decision. It was a really good uh, journey, and I learned a lot of it, and a lot of help from OWASP and OWASP conference and the local chapters and a lot of projects. Um, so this is like a high-level background. Well, I have a question for you because, you know, we, I, I'd say that we've definitely had a few, quite a few people that had kind of started more in software. And one question I always fail to ask, and I, uh, you know, can ask you is, we, as you look back at some of the code that you've written, now that you're doing more security focused work and you've learned quite a bit more about application security and you you know have that skill set do you ever look back and, and think about some of the code you've written and been like mm, perhaps that wasn't as secure as it could have been or does it open your eyes a little bit or or were you pretty much always kind of so writing code with a security in mind yeah um so i definitely have that uh, it's actually um, the way I get into the security champion is because I worked on a specific out to flow for our mobile application. So it was like a four, a four, a four to five months of a lot of, I didn't know it's called threat modeling, but it was a lot of threat modeling sessions and discussion and design, designing the solution and trying to find the most secure solution. And I was there from the developer part. And it was really interesting to look back on it and understand like what I was doing and what the security people on, who work on with me on that were asking me and how all that is going on. Um, so yeah, I have both of them. Um, yeah, so yeah it's definitely no, I mean, for for what it's worth, like I, we've talked about this several times, having a secure code background and still writing insecure code, like definitely have done that before accidentally. Yeah. We, we, we do it purposefully from time to time too, right, Ken? Right? Yeah, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I, I think back to my like development days and 
And, uh, you know, some of that code I know is just riddled with things like SQL injection, right? I mean, back, I mean, granted, back in the day, there, the frameworks didn't do anything but, right? But I still, I, I cringe to think of, you know, some of that running internally at an old uh, old job or something like that. There's others that I'm proud of, but there's some of that I'm like, oh, I know I just threw that together, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the main problem is that now every time that I write code, it's need to be perfect. Like. I cannot write code that has any security vulnerability in it. So each time I'm, going, I'm trying to commit something, it's like, that's it perfect? Can I push it? Because you know, you need to be an example. You can't push a code that is not uh, that has any security issue in it. So it's like has two sides. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to oh, be efficient, it, it, functional, and secure, which is it. It, it, it definitely yeah. does, right? So like, I, I run into this all the time because you know, we were talking about DefCon before we started, right? And we, I do the the Hacker Tracker app for DefCon, which is like the conference app that you know has the schedule in it and all of that stuff. And we get so much crap from all the attendees about how we're tracking their location and you know X, Y, and Z. And I'm and I'm like, okay, I've got to do it. If I don't do it right, somebody's going to pick it apart, and I'm I'm never going to hear the end of it. Right? There's just there's no way. Right? Just destroy my reputation completely. Um, it's it's kind of a it's a fine line to walk and internal in an organization, you run into that same thing, right? So if you're developing code and then trying to t turn around and tell the developers that they do it wrong, if you do it wrong, like all, you know, they're not going to trust you to tell them ever again. Right. Yeah. And again, it's also like we had this discussion now about a lot of security tools because uh, I'm part of a team who also have services with issues. So like I keep pushing teams to, to fix their issues, but my, my, my team can't fix the issue in the services they own. So it's all get again and again to the same problem, like um, the dog feeding. Yeah. You get to do the thing. So it's a really good experience. Like I think it's really important. Yeah. So what, what, is your, what languages are your background? What did you come up developing in? So I started, uh, my dad thought it's a good idea to teach me basic when I was in fourth grade. I don't know what he, t what he had in mind, but uh, this is how I started, and it was really cool that he teach me basic. I don't remember a lot of basic, a bit VB, which I want to, like, you know, forget, but I can't. Purge that. Yeah, yeah, let's just purge that. Move on. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then uh, I moved on to C, C++, Assembler, and then I finally get to normal things like C Sharp and, you know, languages with garbage collector that you don't care if you forget to dispose something. Okay, uh, yeah. Well, well, that's interesting. I, I, like, I, I know a lot of the background nowadays right if uh, kids are going through school or whatever right you know they they may they may get some java or net but I, I don't see as much c c plus plus maybe if they take like a compiler class or something like that they may play at those lower levels and play with assembler or assembly um but i think in general we're, we've seen this switch to a lot of javascript like node developers and Rails developers, heaven forbid, or you know Python, which is much better than Rails. I, don't remember. I think whatever. It's a lot easier to start. Like if you let someone today start with C or C plus plus, he will just get scared. And you know, I don't want to do anything related to programming. And starting with Node.js or Python or .NET is far less frightening and get you to understand what is programming and not hey, I forgot to dispose something. So like it has, I think it's better. Um, it's definitely easier to kind of learn those concepts, right? I think back to like uh, like the algorithm courses and things like that that I did in, in college. And it was very, I mean, it was very C++ heavy. And uh, it was, there was a lot of de debugging involved for sure, where it was, I mean, but that's where you learn to actually debug that. So I, I can't discount how like valuable some of that is in my own brain. Um, and then we saw a huge inrush. I, I'm not sure, like, I, I, I kind of date myself, but, you know, my, uh, you know, I really got into the industry is there was a huge, like, everyone's programming, programming web pages, right? Was the, it was all just HTML. And it was the huge fight that everyone was a programmer because they could go in and do markup. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. Um, but so, 
I don't know. I mean, there's no one true path for sure. Um, yeah. But I think your experience in C, C++, right? I, you, you probably, an assembly especially, I would imagine you understand exploits a lot better than somebody that's only done Node.js, right? Um, yes, a bit more. Like, I cannot really program right now in assembler. I didn't do it like 10 years. Um, but yeah, I still remember things like, I don't know, little Andean, big Andean, or this really weird issues that you don't want to face ever at your career. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's interesting though, because I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a requirement for, especially for application security. I'd much rather have a node developer that knew how to program a web application and then is advising other node developers on what the security issues are than, you know, a C developer trying to come in and tell a node developer, hey, you can't do that because you didn't clean up your, you know, you didn't implement garbage collection or whatever it is. Um, it's a different, it's kind of a different skill set. I mean, you know, Ken, I, I know your, you know, programming background isn't necessarily like the um, institutional, like, you know, schooling or whatever. Um, yeah, mine was uh, picking up a book and figuring it out and being yeah. confused a lot. And just what, what, and for the record, like what I find, because this has come up before, we were like, people, people will ask, you know, how, you know, how, what's the best way to learn programming or something like that. And someone gave me this advice and I fully 100% believe it. When you have a reason to build something, when there's something you specifically have in mind is when you then truly want to learn to program at least that was the case for me um yeah because then you learn, learn the foundational bits and then uh after that you you keep iterating and refactoring code and maybe throw that yeah. away and build something cooler and keep going from there yeah i mean i mean in in, in school that's there's kind of a structured approach to that but it definitely follows a similar path right we've got oh here's a manual here's a, here's a textbook that you use it's just kind of the the advisement. I think there's, I mean, there's so many ways into AppSec nowadays that it's not a prerequisite, um, but it definitely, I, I don't know, like I, I go back and forth, right? There's, there's advantages to both cases because um, there's advantages to learning what the shortcuts are and what people do that are, you know, that are coming out of those six week JavaScript programming courses because those are the same vulnerabilities that are going to show up in those production applications wherever they go. Well, when I, I was know. in the Navy, when I was in the Navy, you know, I had gone to several schools. Um, schools for uh, one was for like uh, splicing fiber op or not splicing, but uh, terminating fiber optic cables and working with fiber optic cables. Um, got a certification out of that. Did a, a school on just purely uh, like Alcatel. Um, switching and routing, uh, Cisco, you know, I, I went to a bunch, bunch of courses and one thing like I'll say is, um, I'm glad I learned programming the way I did because in those courses, you know, there was stuff that I worked with every day that when they explained it on a, on a whiteboard or in a present PowerPoint presentation, it didn't really, like, I knew what they were talking about just because of my experience, but think when I was thinking about it, I'm like, this sounds so abstract and not something that you can really apply. And like, if I had learned programming in a, in a classroom, the difficulty there is like, okay, why do I need an array? What the hell is an array? How do you explain, explain that to somebody? What's, what's a hash, you know, basic stuff now, but stuff at the time that's like, you know, when you're building code to do something, you think about it as like, oh, I've got these, you know, I've got 17 values. I need to iterate through each one and do something on them. And then you're like, well, how do I do that? What's the best way to do that? And you find out, oh, like, all right, it's like, cool, I get that. You know, I shove it into this block and I can just iterate through this block. And it's just, you know, when you have a practical purpose for something, I find that it's easier. It's less abstract and it's more like, okay, here's what I need. And so for me, that was useful. Um, just picking up books and writing tools I wanted to, to learn. But anyways, yeah. enough about us. I did want to ask uh, Omer how he got involved in the Glue project with Matt Conda. So um, I do. I, I, let me do just a quick introduction about Glow, just in case not everyone knows what it is. Um, so Glow is an OWASP project. I don't need to explain what OWASP is, right? Or it's better to say a word about it. Right? Yeah, no, no, you know, everybody yeah. is familiar with OWASP, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I had some situation where not everyone knows what OWASP is. Um, so Glow is an OWASP project that has one uh, purpose. It aims to solve the hard problem of gluing security tools into the pipeline. 
And I'm sure that if you ever work with like any security tool that you can name, it was very hard to integrate it into the pipeline, make sure it's break the beard and give you an easy way to ignore false positive because there's always false positive. So Glue aims to solve all these issues. And I don't remember how I heard about Glue, but like when I heard about it, I tried to use it. And, and like I worked a lot of integrated into our pipeline. Uh, for example, uh, I wanted to do something with Nmap and like get uh, use Nmap to enumerate all the all the ciphers on the server or the TLS ciphers. So uh, Nmap will fail the build if there is any weak cipher. So Nmap can do that, but to glue Nmap into the pipeline, you need glue. Um, so this was a a good example of uses of glue. Uh, I think I do it with glue. Like, okay, let's say I do it with glue. <laughs> anyway, this is how uh, I ended up involved with uh, glue, and I really believe in this project um, uh, because you know, if you can't connect the security tools into the pipeline, you didn't do anything. Like, it's useless. Um, and I right, hope you need to be able to, if something changes, to con consistently uh, be able to run the same set of tests um, yeah, when you make a change. Yeah, it's not Like, if you run a test, but you didn't the, break the build, no one will know. It's like a tree falling in the forest that no one hears. So uh, it's not enough to have, like, something in the CI that, that produces reports, because, again, this, you cannot expect developers to say, hey, there is a build here that is green. Let's see if there is a report there. No one will do that. Uh, once the bed is uh, broken, uh, people start care. Um, yeah, that's a. I, I find it a strange. So glue in and of itself, in the explanation that you're having, or like what it is, it's a CI/CD tool, right? That'll spawn a security tool and then pass or fail the build depending on what the results of that security tool yeah. are, right? Um, and so it sounds like you worked on the Nmap integration. Um, are there other tools that you've uh, you know that you're using from the glue project or that you're integrating? So I'm using mainly Zap, um, Zap and Glue integration, make it a lot easier to connect Zap into the pipeline. Actually, one of the last things I worked on in Glue is dynamic task, which means that uh, now if your tool produce um, JSON, uh, you can provide a file that say how to take the JSON output of your file and pass it into Glue. So now adding a new tool to Glue is like just mapping of JSON. You don't need to add code to Glue. And it's make it a lot easier to connect new tools. Until until I added this feature to add a new tool to glue, add the new integration, you had to open a PR, wait for a review, and you know how these things are going. Now you don't need that. You can integrate new tools into glue without even open a, opening a PR. And it's make it a lot easier um, like to use glue because you know there are a lot of niche tools out there that I don't want their code to be in glue, but can be useful to connect with glue. Um, Nice. So, because so before, if you wanted to make a change to glue, or sorry, to add some tool, which would mean added functionality to glue, you actually had to change glue's code. You'd have to uh, submit a pull request and get that merged into the master branch of glue. And now, what you're saying is uh, the the tool. The, it doesn't matter what what you want to um, plug into glue. You can download that code. Don't have to make any changes on the master yep. branch of glue. You should just make some changes locally, and you can tie in the uh, new tool you yeah. want to add. As long as your tool can't produce JSON report, like there is a way to feed Glue with this JSON report, and Glue can do magic on it. You just need to tell the Glue, oh, this is the array of the finding in the JSON, and from the JSON, I want this and this and this. And this Why is JSON? Why JSON over XML? That's a joke, sorry. Uh, <laughs> why JSON over YAML? Uh, yeah. why, why, why Python over Rails, right? That's... Mm. <laughs> no, .NET. No, none of <laughs> these languages. No hipster languages. Just <laughs> no. Wait, 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 wait. That's mine. <laughs> Only .NET. Stop using weird languages that no one... <laughs> Only .NET. Uh, I don't know. Ken may be on board. No, you know, the whole Microsoft connection now that works sure yeah why not go for okay. it go for it folks no your core is really amazing like the, the the phase that microsoft was doing in the last two years of open sourcing open so uh, open sourcing and the entire c-sharp 
it was an amazing move. And uh, .NET is a really, really strong language. And you can do a lot of cool things with it that you can't do in other languages. Uh, I'm really happy. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's just it. Like, I, I know I give .NET a lot of crap, but most of my experience with it was back in the day when it was just them and Java. And, like, the .NET Core stuff is very – it's slick, right? And yeah. even their – I mean, they, they bought GitHub because it's GitHub. Um, and – the, the Visual Studio Code and I, like they've done they've done quite a bit from a developer tooling perspective. I, I yeah, as, as much as it you know pains me, I do have to give them props. So yeah, yeah. Um, so are you mainly developing in .NET then? That's what I'm hearing. Well, um, like you get to a point like after enough years of programming, you can like most of the programming languages are pretty much the same. You just need a bit Google to understand how to do for each in the specific languages. So yeah. I do a lot of things. Um, like the tool that is most easiest for me is .NET, um, but I can do others. Um, Camus uh, written mainly in .NET, like the backend, uh, which was a very interesting choice because, you know, everyone doing Golang right now and uh, developing something especially to Kubernetes in .NET uh, was not uh, the, like, the common choice. Uh, I'm happy with it, but you know, I think uh, it might make others don't want to contribute code because, again, it's not like the language that everyone is using. Yeah. Well, I mean, Glue itself is Ruby, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to. Uh, have you guys had any experience with GoSec? GoSec? The tool. Yeah, the tool GoSec. No, I never heard about it. I've used okay. it a couple times. I'm trying to evaluate. The, if anybody has any other tools for Golang to do open source security or open source static analysis, please send it our way. Um, but GoSec is the one that I am. I should paste the link in. Yeah, it's a set the one I'm looking at. Yeah, the world of uh, always interesting. Uh, on that front, I mean, since you are a .NET guy, I, we'll get into comments in it. In a, in a second, right? Um, like the Kubernetes secret stuff. I'm sure there's going to be people that have questions about that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I consistently run into, like Ken's talking about, is security tooling for languages, right? Um, on, the, on the .NET side, what have you used for just like static analysis or security testing, or has it been all manual? So, actually, um... Uh, we're currently using checkmarks as the SaaS solution, and it's interesting. Uh, I think there is PumaScan that is uh, like a commercial solution. Uh, Microsoft has a really good open source, open source called Dev Scheme. Uh, I can put it on the Slack. It's a really nice open source by Microsoft. It's an ID integration, um, and it's a really good ID, ID integration because it can tell you in the ID what you are doing wrong, and it's even more powerful than that because it can fix the issues for you. Like if you use HTTPS, HTTP instead of HTTPS, he will show you like this is not good, and then you can click and tell it, oh, fix it for me, and you just move from HTTP to HTTPS, and it's really really powerful. Um, nice. So, I, I, yeah, I just I just I, I just pulled it from the Microsoft GitHub, or uh, we'll drop it in the in. Oh yeah, you already did. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, that looks awesome. I, I mean, just the fact that it supports more than just Visual Studio. Um, yeah, it's it's about VS Code, and I think it's also support Atom or uh, Sublime. It supports Sublime, and it supports some languages. And writing rules for it is really easy. And so I'm I really love it. I don't use it a lot because you know it's installed on my VS Code, but it's not more than that. And yeah. No, that that that's incredibly useful. That's exactly what I was looking for. Is kind of what what's being in, what's in use by developers of these languages nowadays, right? Like GoSec for Golang. I mean, DevSkim. Uh, we've had um, Eric on, who's the prime developer on PumaScan before. Um, so they've got that open source version. But I know that's very specific to kind of the not .NET Core side of things or the ASP.NET yeah. side of things, uh, but it works pretty well. So, but DevSkim looks really interesting as well, um, it, you know, from a .NET, but other languages perspective also. Um, yeah, that one's new that. to me. I appreciate the uh, 
giving us that bit of information. That one's completely new to me. I'd never heard of it. <clears throat> never heard of it. So yeah, yeah. Now I'm yeah. jumping down rabbit holes. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, again, what I like the most about this game is the fact that it's really easy to write to rules for it. Not a lot of SAS engines make it easy to write rules. And if you can't run tools, you can't extend the SAS tools. And this can make it really easy. Um, so yeah, it's like amazing open source for Microsoft. Awesome. Yeah. So Seth, I don't know if you wanted to to switch gears to talk a little bit about commas. Um, yeah, and, we should. Uh, I mean, we're already a half hour into this, so let's let's switch over to Kubernetes a little bit rather than. <clears throat> and I'm yeah. posting the slides to uh, Omer's talk. But if you um, could expand, uh, tell us a little bit about your AppSec Cali talk, about the solution, uh, how yeah, it came cool. about, and how it's implemented and everything. I'm also posting the blog post because I guess it will be easier to read it. Um, so just put the link to the blog post. Um, so uh, I guess, as you already know, uh, keeping secret is important. <laughs> like you don't want someone to have access to your secrets because, you know, database credentials, API keys, whatever. Um, and Kubernetes not, doesn't make it easy. Um, like Kubernetes has a native solution, Kubernetes secrets, but it's nice and they put a lot of effort on making it secure and they really put a lot of efforts, like making sure it's only in the nodes that need it and a lot of mitigations to protect it. But it has one problem, which is GitOps. Like if you want to do Kubernetes secrets in GitOps manner, it's really hard because the YAML, the manifest files, are base64 encoded. And you don't want to put something that is base64 encoded in Git repository. <laughs> it's not really good. Um, so we faced this issue like it was a year ago. After we start, we did a lot of effort of helping people to make it easier to deploy code to Kubernetes. And we did a lot of effort around Helm and a lot of that. And everything started to play, and people started to use Kubernetes. And then we get to the point of, you know, you need secrets, because you need secrets for almost everything. Um, and we really didn't know what to do. And we started to look on solutions. Um, so there are some solutions to create encrypted versions of Kubernetes secrets, like sealed secret or, or ham secret. Um, by the both, they both imperfect. Sealed secret is a very popular open source by Vietnami, I think, if I, if I remember correctly. That sounds right, yeah. Um, it has one like big small problem, depend on how much you care. And the encryption is done by one keeper that is stored on the cluster, um, which I think is not that good choice from a security point of view, like no protections on the keys and stuff like that. Um, and and hand secret is coupling to hand. And I didn't want to do couple to hand because you know we might decide one day to stop using hand and then we need to rank it everything. Um, so these are the popular solutions. Um, and like there was no one that we can use. Uh, so we started to look on the Vault integration, HashiCorp Vault, uh, which is also nice, but it's not GitOps solution. It's really good, it's really secure, but A, you need Vault if you don't have Vault yet. And B, um, it's not GitOps solution, which is not what we wanted. And it's add another, uh, another component that you need to protect and do RBAC to that component and all that. So we just make things more complex if you don't have Vault already. Um, and then we were pretty confused. Like I remember me thinking pretty, dis pretty like desperate because I looked all over Google and there was nothing that I feel I can use. And one day, actually, while working on Glue, um, I worked. I, I Glue is, the, uh, is using Travis. And if you ever worked with Travis, Travis has a really cool uh, solution for secrets. Uh, it's basically create public key for every repository. And then you can use this public key to encrypt secret only for this repository. So only can Travis decrypt them. It's really awesome. And they did it really easy with the CLI and it's secure enough to be stored, to, to store the secret uh, encrypted on public GitHub repository. Um, because again, they generate key per, per repository. And I saw it and I was thinking, Maybe I can do something similar for Kubernetes. And this is how Camus uh, created. Um, so Travis was the main inspiration. 
basically Camus let you encrypt a secret for a specific application on Kubernetes. This was like the main threat model. You encrypt a secret once and no one can decrypt it beside the application. And this is what, uh, on one hand, simplified the security significantly because there is no rules, everything is flattened and everyone have the same permissions. Uh, and the other hand gives something that is useful and secure and GitOps friendly and all that. Um, so this is the high level overview. So the, and the, the, the main reason that I typically, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the main reason that um, you don't, well, I think there's always the chance that, you know, uh, someone gets access to like your a laptop that has the source code or somehow gets access to uh, the source code, whether it's leaked accidentally or it's, um, like I said, stole, like a stolen laptop or um, malware on a laptop and they go rummaging around and find the source code. Is that the main threat model that you're trying to protect against or is there, are there other things that you're trying to protect against with this? So what I was trying to protect is I want to have a, an easy solution that will allow uh, everyone to use GitOps and create secrets easily and encrypt them. And I want to uh, decrease significantly the attack surface. So if you let, if you like have RBAC, so people have permissions to decrypt and stuff like that, you need to start thinking it's add more, uh, it's increased attack surface. Uh, so Camus let you decrease it significantly because the secret that's, uh, can be decrypted only in two places, on the computer of, on the developers who create the secret, and hopefully she will remember to delete it, and on the pod itself on Kubernetes. So you have far less things to worry about, uh, and this was the main thinking and uh, behind the design. Ah, understood. So, um... Are, are there any other, uh, besides secrets, are there, Seth, did you drop off? Sorry, to, um, um, issues, so hopefully it's solved itself now. Uh, sorry about that. Um, all right, I lost track of what I was asking you. Um, what did you develop, Camus, how, or Camus? How, how long has this been out? So um, we developed it like, it's in production, I think, uh, since last July. Uh, like I finished it right before my daughter uh, was born and I was off to, paternity, to, uh, to parental leave. Um, so it was like last July. Um, so it's in solution in production for, um, I think, eight months. And it's open source since January. And we had a lot of uh, traffic. We get like more than 100 stars in the last month. And we hope to see more traffic. Uh, we currently mainly want to see more users using it. Um, uh, and the idea behind Camus is that the encryption is done by pluggable encryption uh, solutions. So currently we support Azure Keyword and uh, Google GCP, and of course, in-memory AES key. Both Azure Keyword and Google GCP give you HSM protections, which is uh, Google KMS. And so they both give you uh, HSM, and Azure also give you IP filtering. So these are really, really good uh, protections and to help uh, ensure that these sensitive keys that used to encrypt the secret are state secure. And we do hope to add AWS soon. And we would like yeah, to I have... Mean, we, when you, well, I mean, one thing I was trying to, can you further expand upon when, because you, you had said that um, using something like, because uh, people are like, well, uh, you know, why not Vault or Azure's Key Vault or something like that? You said it's not a GitOps solution. Can you yeah. expand upon that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, as you said, you can use Vault or Azure Key Vault or AWS SSM or whatever. There are a lot of good solutions out there, but using this solution, meaning that um, you have, you need to have a flow where the developer who create the service and deploy it and all that need also now to put the secrets on this thing, on this world, and manage them there, and the service need to pull it from there. So now you have two sources of truth to what exists in production, the vault and the deployment files, and you need to look on both of them. And I always prefer GitOps because GitOps give you one source of truth, which is Git, 
and everything has happened through there. And like, if a new developer comes to the team and uh, she wants to know what is going on or what is in production or stuff like that, she needs to understand one thing. Also, if you start thinking about how you model RBAC and like resource-based access control, so you need to give all the developers access to write to this world. And you also need to give them permissions to, because you know, if a developer now needs to create a new service, so uh, the developer will also need to grant permissions to this service to read from the vault. So either you have another person in the company who manage like access to the vault, or you need to give developers permissions to create a um, service account for their service or stuff like that. And it's get really messy really fast. And I just didn't want to get into all these challenges. And I prefer to develop something that is GitOps. And again, the idea behind Camus is be like a small, tiny wrapper behind Azure Key Vault or Google KMS or even Vault encryption as a service. We might add that in the future. If someone sees it as a valuable, we can add it. It's like three hours adding a new plugin. Yeah, I mean, it does sound like there's, because when you started just talking about some basic pieces of doing some management, I mean, we talk about role-based access control or having a, a, a person who is helping essentially control these secrets and you, you get it in several places. It's versus like what it sounds like is just, you know, here's a single source of truth. Uh, it's in the, the Git repo and that's all you need. Well, the developer knows the secret and this can be um, used once deployed out of that single source of truth. So that's an easy, uh, that's an easy, or sorry, not easy. That's a, um, well, it's easier to manage certainly less, less complex, but it's a, it's a, some of the best solutions are the most uh, simple ones. So very nice. And, like keep it simple. Kiss. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good principle. Keep it simple. Yeah. Um, Seth, do you, uh, do you have anything to add there? I know you, uh, I, I asked cause I know your network connectivity had, uh, or you were having some experiencing some network issues. Yeah, I am. I, sorry about that, guys. I don't know what's going on. Is this on. a good time to rail on Comcast? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's just what I was going to do. Like nothing changes, and all of a sudden my like network drops out from underneath me. Yay! We um, have a uh, provider here, Omer, and the, the the Comcast, and they're like one of the worst uh, providers. And I think Seth stuck with them. Like I'm happy to hear that because yeah, I I, no, yeah normally it works okay, but. Yeah. What? I'm now connected on my 3G, like on my phone, because I know I have a lot of internet connection on my cable at home. Um, so I'm happy to hear that, you know, it's not only me in Israel that have network issues, like in 2019. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's not, you know, <laughs> not at all. Um, yeah, I mean, so in general, you've had good success rolling out kind of across the board. Um, like. What what are some of the issues that you've run into trying to implement that um, that you know other people will you know may see the same problems? Um, you're asking like what the issues we face when we decide that um, make us develop commas? Yeah, yeah. yeah like what, what learns lessons learned? So uh, I keep getting to the same point of GitOps. Um, the way we work at Soroto, I like to call it super devs. Uh, it's developers who do everything. Uh, we write the code, but we also are responsible of the point of production and also monitoring the service, like uh, the one who carries the pager and all that. There is no like tiers at Soroto. Um, so when you have that super devs, you need to give them uh, easy tools that will help them do their work. And GitOps make, it, uh, make a lot of sense here. Because again, you have everything on GitHub that everyone knows what GitHub is. Like half my day, my, my work day is on GitHub. And you have easy review and you have easy versioning and audit and all that. And this is why I wanted from the first place to have a secure GitOps flow end to end. You just put something in GitHub. And it's more than that. I also wanted an easy way to know what changed. Um, like uh, one of the way that uh, if you're still using Kubernetes secret, a lot of people ended up using doing the following. You have like JSON with all the sensitive configuration. 
you take the, all this JSON, do base64 encode of it, and you put this in a secret. So you have one key in Kubernetes secret, and the value of this key is this encoded JSON. You can imagine that? Yeah. Okay. So once you have that, uh, editing this JSON is cumbersome and open because you need to do base64 the code, modify, add a new key or whatever, and then encode back and put it. And it's also make it really hard to understand what changed, and it can create a lot of errors in the way, and this is why I wanted to create a solution where you can see easily what key changed, not what values, but you can understand that, uh, and I don't know, yesterday, um, Shalom changed the connection string, and like four months ago, Mira changed the value of the API keys, or stuff like that, so you can see what key changed, but not the value. And this was like the what the, the solution I wanted to end it up with, and this is what we have with Camus. Nice. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like it definitely feels a, a, I mean, a need for like abstracting that out and doing it in a you know easy way to understand what's going on with those secrets, right? Yeah. So at this point, how many how many like. How big is the install? Like, how many secrets are you currently managing with it? You know, across the board, is that kind of middleware solution? So currently, I know only on us that are using it, um, and this is why I'm trying to like talk about it, like with everyone who let me talk about it, because again, I think uh, it has some advantage, and of course, some disadvantage related to others tools that are existing out there. Um, so we do get traction. We have almost uh, 200 stars on GitHub. And if you can help us get to 200, it will make us happy. Um, but we hope to see more users, um, or at least hear why people don't want to use it, because it will help us understand why. Um, uh, and we also uh, like trying to add a lot of new features, for example, CRD. Um, if you have, like I don't know, you want uh, TLS secrets for Prometheus, so uh, we want to have like Camus secret, so we can create Camus secret using Camus. And behind the scene, you will have Kubernetes secret regularly that you can use for third-party tier, uh, tier charts that you are not managing. So this is one of the things we want to work on to make Camus even more usable. And like in the end goal, uh, I see Camus as something that can live outside of Kubernetes. For example, if you have a function, a Lambda running on an AWS, this Lambda, Lambda has an identity, and you can encrypt a secret specifically for this Lambda and use Camus the same way that you use it on Kubernetes. But this is like the end state of Camus, where it can go, because this area of secret management is not solved. It's not easy at all, and there is no good GitHub solution that works everywhere. And I hope one day Camus will get there. I think it can go there, but like we need a lot of more help <laughs> from people to get there. Well, so if you uh, if you can contribute, please do then to the project, not just use it. But you know that's the interesting thing with open source is always trying to get people to actually. I, I don't think that there's it's it's not well. It, I guess it could be, but it, I don't. I find that it's not as hard to get people to use or test out the you know kick the tires on something you've built so much as getting issues and PRs submitted for your project. Um, that whole contribution, contributing back, that's always a, a little bit more difficult. And actually, um, not to get too far off the topic, but you are starting to see people um, you know, on GitHub actually put their, put ways to contribute and, and, and do like sort of a, uh, you know, similar to what Ubuntu does, if you try to download the uh, source, it says, hey, would you like to donate? So you're starting to see some more, some more of that. But that's open source difficulties are probably a, a whole other talk yeah. for a different day. Um, yeah. Seth, <clears throat> you know, we're probably starting to, we're going to probably start wrapping up soon. Um, are there any thoughts? Like one of the things yeah. I did want to, I want to. I'm back again. To, I don't, we'll see. Uh, I think we heard, uh, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties. Um, but one thing I did want to uh, mention is your blog post, which I thought was really interesting. Because last, I think it was like a uh, week ago, Seth and I were on uh, Grumpy Hackers, which is a, uh, 
it's not a uh i don't think they advertise it too much but it's, it is a podcast um uh did cover everything though. AppSec, incident response, network security, DevOps. One of the things we were talking about on there is like this whole idea of infrastructure as code and how it's merging traditional network security responsibilities with AppSec uh, responsibilities. And I noticed you had written a uh, blog post on, on this topic. So I'm gonna go ahead, and, go ahead and share that out. And you actually were, it looked like you were trying to come up with a solution like threat modeling as code uh, is sort of how I interpreted that. Uh, Omer. Yeah. Um, it's actually a pretty hot topic right now. If you were at Axie Kali, there were like three or four talks uh, there that touch different areas of that modeling of code. Um, there was one good, good talk about how you do uh, continuous threat modeling uh, by Izar Tarandach, and I probably mispronounced his name, so Izar, I'm really, really sorry. Um, <laughs> But uh, he did a really good talk at AppSecali about uh, continuous threat modeling and how they do continuous threat modeling at uh, Autodesk. And part of it, he mentioned uh, PyTM, which is a framework uh, they developed for threat modeling as code. And this is something I'm evaluating right now, and I hope it will uh, be useful for us. Uh, but yeah, definitely, if you're into threat modeling, this is what's going on now. And of course, come to our threat modeling channel if you're not there yet, and because all the good things happen there. Cool, awesome. Yeah, no, I mean it's interesting because um, I think it's I think it's cool to uh, to make this sort of um, well an easier process to um, to do, but also it just sort of some of the the things you talk about, like with Adam Showstocks. Um, uh, work in that area of threat modeling and um, just the whole, I think the whole interest, the whole infrastructure as code um, approach to threat modeling, to building infrastructure. Um, it's all, it's all fairly interesting to see how that, that shift um, is occurring. So yeah. where, and it really, it plays into that whole, that single source of truth that we've been talking about for the last half hour with Git, uh, Git ops. And I'm not saying that because I work for GitHub. I'm saying that because uh, it doesn't matter if it's GitHub and it's a Git repo. Um, it's nice no, to have that truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, Look that, at me. I'm, I'm talking about .NET and uh, Git. How surprising. There, there, there you go. I'm th and so it begins. Um, <laughs> the... Like the interesting thing that I find in that is that like anytime that we switch from a manual process to a more automated process, like exactly what you're doing, like, and I need to look more into the threat modeling stuff that you've been like proposing. Cause it like, it definitely affects how we, how we approach everything from, you know, Hey, what secure code reviews do we do? What kind of architecture do we build? Like threat modeling is kind of that initial Hey, what's going on with this application? How do we enter into it, and how do we actually start analyzing it from a security perspective? So, the more automated that I that we can make that, probably the better off we're going to be up front. Um, so, like, I, I mean, I know we've kind of touched it on the surface, but like, what can you give us a short, just TLDR, like short description of what you're, uh, like, what you're proposing with threat modeling as code, and how someone would go about that? So you can actually, you can see an example in Camus. Uh, we released Camus with an open source threat modeling. Uh, I can put the link later, but on the on Camus repository, there is a full threat modeling in BDD format. BDD is behavior-driven development, and it's actually in a language called Jerkin, which lets you write features or user story. So you can do things like, um, as a hacker, I want to get all the secrets or stuff like that. And we use Jerkin to document the output of the threat modeling we do. So this is one side of threat modeling as code when you use code to document the threat modeling. And there are some work out there to create from this Jerkin stuff automated security test, but it's like a totally different uh, subject. And the other side is using code to generate the chart, the, the diagram. So uh, I like to use PlantUML, and it's also on Camus repository. We have one file that describes the flow, and on this file uh, you can see like the full flow. And using PlantUML, you can generate 
from this file uh, the full uh, diagram. The full diagram. Yeah, and I think you find it. It's a good example. Okay. Yeah. No. That. I, I mean, that would be really helpful from a just like planning perspective. All right, we've got a new project, or we want to do a threat model. How do we actually implement that in a code perspective? That's not. I mean, that honestly, that's not not an Excel spreadsheet, right? Like that's yeah. everybody's solution for threat modeling is an Excel spreadsheet, and yeah. and it it's just not. It's so hard to analyze from a yeah yeah an automated perspective. And yeah, and hopefully you can see this. This is oh, I'm sorry. No, I just I wanted to say just one sentence. Camus is a really sensitive project, and you know, if I was a user, I wanted to know why I should trust it. And this is why we decided to release the open source. Uh, the threat modeling is open source, and I hope to see more and more uh, open source projects releasing their own threat modeling. So. I can read the threat modeling and see what they were thinking on. And you know, I can contribute new threats if they didn't think about it and stuff like that. And this is because we care a lot about security and we want to make Camo secure. Um, so this was the main motivation behind including a threat modeling in a repository, which is very rare. I don't think I see a lot of, like I can't think now of an open source I see that includes a threat modeling in it. And again, this is something I hope to see changed. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I like I see that as more useful than the whole like security.txt file that people are trying to drop on domains, right? If we know what the actual threats are in code. I, the most that I've seen up to this point, and I'm looking at those feature files now, but the most I've seen in other projects is maybe something in the docs that maybe talks a little bit about it, but it's usually, oh, well, we want to make sure that, you know, cross-site scripting isn't an issue, so X, Y, and Z, right? Um, not the full-blown, hey, we did a full threat model and these are all the threats that we're seeing. And that's, yeah, that's that's very interesting. I, like, I think it's imperfect and we should work on making it more readable. Like I tried to play with how I can generate a web page from it, like GitHub web page from it. I just don't have enough time to keep investigating, keep investing in that. Um, but I do look for feedback on how we can make it more readable. We just put all the threat and mitigations we can think of. And we still have security MD because, you know, if you can think of a new threat that we didn't think of, please don't open a PR. Use security MD to report it to us uh, securely. securely. Um, yeah. So I think you need the combinations of both of them. Uh, yeah. For sure. Fantastic. No, that's well, a, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. So sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to try and screen share real quick just so that someone could get a visual of uh, what we're talking, if I can figure out where I put it. Hold on. Um, so that yeah, should be a there. pretty good example, yeah, where you've got a feature, um, what it's supposed to do, the scenario uh, outline, examples of uh, data types there. Um, and it's just, it, it almost reads like, in some sense, it almost reads kind of like uh, unit testing in, in a way. Um, yeah, it's coming from BDD. Uh, if you're familiar with BDD, so BDD is exactly that. You use a natural language or something that is close to natural language. And actually, I need to mention here Father Scott, that if you don't hear about Father Scott or Stoddard Zero X10 on Twitter, he's the, one, he's the person behind OWASP Cloud Security Project, which is an amazing OWASP project doing the same thing just for AWS and Azure. So you have a GitHub repository with currently it's only AWS, but a lot of threats and mitigation in the same format. I took the format from Fraser and he helped me a lot in writing it. Um, but you have the same thing for cloud. Um, so I just need to you know, give him credit because uh, it's the inspiration here. And I think it's amazing. Awesome. Thank you. That, I mean, this is this is uh, this is really interesting stuff. I mean, honestly, like I, I this is this these these things are sort of new to me, uh, and I would assume so of um, some of our viewers for sure. So, like this has been incredibly helpful. Uh, I really like this because I, I especially this this threat modeling um, as code. I've I hadn't seen this yet, so that's it's really awesome. When we appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, so we're going to start wrapping things up. We're a little over an hour now. Um, Seth, was there anything you wanted to chat about before we um, start closing out? 
not uh, not necessarily. Obviously, we've posted all the links uh, to Camus and you know DevScam and everything else that we've talked about today. Um, the yeah, the, the threat modeling stuff, like Ken was saying, you know, that seems super useful to me, right? Like actually just having a format to, to push that out that is somewhat standardized. So like, we'll, we'll take a look at that. So Omar, like, thank you once again for coming on. Thank you for, you know, participating. This is, uh, this is great. And we'll keep, you know, talking about Camos and see, let us know how things progress with it. Um, so on that on that same note, is there anywhere like how can people interact with you like Twitter or are there any other conferences that you'll be at in the future? So um, currently, only things in Israel. Uh, I submitted to KubeCon, uh, and I really hope to get accepted. But you know, it's KubeCon, um, so finger crossed. Um, so yeah, Twitter is the best place. Um, I have my DMs open, and also I'm on so many Slacks. Like I'm in Kubernetes Slack, OS Slack, CNCF Slack. Now I'm on absolute absolute AppSec Slack. So just find us. Uh, find me on one of these Slacks. And if someone have any questions about Camus, just feel free to ping me. I will be more than happy to help people set it up. Hear what is not working, why they can't use it. Just you know, tell me everything. <laughs> Awesome. Well, and even more so than, you know, thanking you for coming on the podcast. Appreciate the open source contributions. It's uh, not, I don't, if you've never had to build an open source project and maintain it and try to get people to contribute and try to get people to use it, um, I'll just say that it's 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 a difficult uh, sometimes, uh, I almost want to say alienating or lonely uh, uh, endeavor, um, but, you know, uh, for those that use it, it's it's greatly appreciated. Um, so thank you for that as well. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, th I just wanted to say thank you. I really enjoyed the last hour. Uh, it was a really good conversation. Uh, yeah, it was very informative. It really was. It's very informative. So I mean, for for me personally, it's very informative. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, when we end the podcast, please don't jump off right away. We'll stop the broadcast for everyone else, but. Uh, don't jump off just right right at, off at that. Awesome. So is there anything else you wanted to leave anyone with, Omer? Um, anything else to uh, say before we go? Uh, no, just if you can give us a star, give us a star on GitHub. Uh, if you hear us and you enjoyed the podcast, we will really appreciate it. And that's it. Thank you. And have a great day, night, evening, whatever, depending on your time zone. Time zone. <laughs> well, I just gave you a star, so. <laughs> Thank there you. you go. He got a couple extra stars just right now. Yeah. 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 We, yeah. Honestly, we really appreciate it. The whole reason that we do this podcast is so that we discover new things as well. So this has been for me as well. It's been great to actually, Oh, there's a couple new tools. There's more to try out. You know, constantly learning is a great thing. So thank you again. Um, outside of that, uh, Ken, I don't think there's anything else to announce right now. Uh, find us on Twitter that I'll, I'll get the, the podcast put together um, for iTunes and Google Play and Spotify here shortly, and we'll push that out um, probably later this evening. Uh, so watch for it, and I'll tweet out about it once it's there. So yeah, and you and I can discuss timing as well. Like maybe we maybe if this is a, a better time for people. I don't know. We'll, we could we could play around with it if we need to. So we'll see. Yep, sounds good. Okay, great. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks for joining. All right, bye.